Okay. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the so that at so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Praise be to God. Well, family, it is good to be gathered together today. Man, it was so beautiful to sing with all of you. Hey, that was just so, so fun. Uh, Spirit of God is here, and so we are thankful that the Holy Spirit is in our midst, and we pray that he would continue to come, fill us, fill this place, remind us of his presence. My name is Matt. I am one of the pastors here within our church family, Uh, and as we scatter throughout the weeks, it's so good to serve and to be the one that gets to teach uh, primarily for our church family. As we did last week, as we will be doing every single week, I want us to now pause, and I want to invite you to ask the question of yourself, how am I feeling? Um, That might be a good feeling, that might be a bad one, but let's first start by asking God to reveal to us how we're feeling, and then what I want you to do is very intentionally invite Jesus into that place, whether it be painful, whether it be uh, happy, whatever it is. Take a moment, pause, you can close your eyes and do that, and invite Jesus in. Amen. So we are, I realize we come out of that and it's like, ah, right? For some of us, it's the first time we've actually paused today. So it's so beautiful. As we jump in here, I just want to do a little bit of a summary. We are in this series called In Guelph As It Is In Heaven. And every single year uh, since, I, since I planted, every fall, I've taken the opportunity as the communicator and as the teacher to do a vision seri- series. And why I think the repetition of a vis- vision series is so important is that vision leaks. And what we can do as a church family and corporations and anything, but churches especially, is we can forget why we are who we are, why we do the things that we do, and then also why we're actually scattered in missional communities. Like, why are we doing that? And why are we gathering in this place? And so it's so important to focus every single year, yet again, on who we are, where we're going, why we're going to that place. And so this year I've called that In Guelph As It Is In Heaven, which is our vision statement. And the summary of that is that In Guelph As It Is In Heaven is where Jesus is King. 
And each week, we are looking at evidences of what would it look like if heaven were to actually break out in our midst. Like, if we're praying that, will we actually be able to know if that's, in fact, happening? So last week, we talked about the fact that throughout Jesus' teachings, throughout the entirety of the scriptures, the good news of Jesus, the good news of God coming to this earth is constantly being talked about. When heaven comes to earth, Jesus is going to be made known. That was week two. Now today, we are talking about a second evidence. And the second evidence is what I'm calling the subversive rubric of Jesus' kingdom. Now, right off the top, right, that sounds a little bit confusing. What do you mean by subversive rubric of Jesus' kingdom? Well, the word subversive, it means this. It means disruptive. It means to seek or intend to subvert an established system or institution. In other words, it's to turn things completely upside down. So that's subversive. A rubric, on the other hand, and some of us might remember this from being in class. I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a little bit. But a rubric is essentially a grading system. It's how you figure out how you're doing. And so the subversive rubric of Jesus' kingdom is essentially Jesus' disruptive grading system for his kingdom. His disruptive grading system for his kingdom. And why this is so important is that every single one of us has a rubric for our lives. Everyone has a rubric for their lives. Every single person has an internal grading system that they're constantly using to figure out for themselves, how am I doing? Where am I at? Can I get better? Am I doing terribly? Now, in my experience, most of our rubrics are based on a few different things. And I've got the rubric, I've created it for ourselves up here. On the left would be the internal motivations. They can be things that are our heart idols, the things that drive us. And the first would be something like power. Now, power can also be status, or it could be your influence. And so what you're asking yourself the question is, am I an influential person? And so then you'd grade yourself. You'd say, I am an unsatisfactory in the realm of influence. And so therefore, your desire is you want to be excellent. You want to have lots of influence. Maybe for you, it's the motivating factor of approval. And you ask the question, do I have people's approval? Average. I have average approval. And so your life is filled with shame, and you're overwhelmed, and you're constantly trying to have other people approve of you. Maybe it's even the approval of yourself. You don't approve of you. So how in the world is God going to approve of me if I don't approve of me? And certainly other people don't approve of me. And then we have the underlying motivation of comfort. You ask the question, am I comfortable in life? You know, do I have the life that I always imagined for myself? Am I living, you know, the American or the Canadian dream? Do I have the job that I want? And so you ask the question, am I comfortable? Well, I'm above average as far as comfort. But then out of your life, the ways that you're living, you're constantly trying to seek more comfort. And then the last one would be control. And you ask the question, Am I in control of my life? And based on how you grade that is how you then live. It's how you interact with other people. Now, I would say, and I would just advise you to take this down, write this down as a note, because this is is the culture in which we live, right? Because everyone's after to be excellent as an influencer. Everyone's after to be excellent as far as approval. Everyone's after having the ultimate comfort of excellence. And everyone's after having full control of your life. And so, you know, the way that you interact with people in your street, the classes that you're a part of in your workplace is all about this. We have this rubric that governs and directs our life. 
and it influences the way that we live. And many of us, if we're honest, are living in a place of deep shame. Andrea has been reading Daring Greatly by Brene Brown, in which she talks about the absolute control that shame has over our culture. And what she suggests, and I would suggest, is that she's saying that most people live in the unsatisfactory category related to all four of these things, and it drives you to a place of shame. So we all have a rubric that is governing and leading our lives. But then secondly, we also have expectations of a rubric, and we all have expectations of what Jesus' rubric is, right? Each and every single one of us have expectations of what Jesus' rubric is like. Now, this could be accurate, and it might not be accurate, but think in your mind right now, what is your expectation of Jesus' rubric based on these four things? What does Jesus say about you related to power? What does Jesus say about you related to approval? What does Jesus say about you related to comfort? What does Jesus say to you about control? When I was in grade 12, I made the decision that I was going to take the academic track in high school. And so some of you will be aware of this. When I was in high school, you could take the applied track or you could take the academic track. And typically what that meant is that uh, applied would generally lead you to college and academic would generally lead you to university. Uh, Some of us who have gone through university and haven't had jobs coming out of university, you maybe wish like, man, I could have saved myself a whole lot of time if I'd just done something different. That's besides the point. I'm just telling you. But I made the decision in grade 12 that I was going to intentionally take the academic track. And so in grade 12, I took academic uh, grade 12 English. And I believe it was in my second semester. And I discovered as second semester was approaching that that meant I was going to have Mrs. Thomas. Now, Mrs. Thomas was my grade 11 English teacher. And Mrs. Thomas was probably in the realm if she should have already retired, but she hadn't. And she was continuing to be a teacher of uh, grade grade 12 English, all the academic English classes, she was an extremely difficult marker. And so when I found out that I was going to have Mrs. Thomas as my grade 12 English teacher, I was incredibly disappointed, to say the least. And so I remember going into my first grade 12 academic English class with Mrs. Thomas, and she handed out the syllabus. And the syllabus is the description of what you're going to be doing throughout the year, all the different things, the reports that you're going to be needing to make. And immediately upon receiving that, I was convinced I am not staying here. I'm certainly not staying with Mrs. Thomas, and I'm certainly not staying in this class. And so the next day I made the decision that I was going to go to the guidance office and I was going to inform the guidance office that I was going to go to applied grade 12 English. Now the beauty of the situation was that grade 12 applied English was right across the hallway and during the same period as academic grade 12 English. So as a result, it wasn't going to mess with my schedule. It just meant that I'd go right rather than left when I went to that particular hallway. And so I went to the guidance office and they didn't know me very well. And so they said, sure, you know, but you're going to need to get Mrs. Thomas's signature in order to go to grade 12 applied English. So I'm like, oh, great, here we go. So, you know, I go to see Mrs. Thomas during lunchtime and she's, of course, sitting there in her office, you know, reading her own book, of course, as a great English teacher. And so she's doing that. And so I come in, I'm like, hey, Mrs. Thomas, hello, Matthew. You know, of course, she's Matthew. So hello, Um, I uh, made a decision, and I would like to go to applied English. Oh, my goodness. You know when someone looks at you and you know they're disappointed? That's what I got. You know, I was disappointed she was my teacher. She was disappointed that I was leaving her class. And so she, uh, she got out this page. She took the paper, and she said, Matthew, I, am, I do not think this is a wise decision. 
And I said, well, Mrs. Thomas, like, it's not really up to you. It's up to me, so thanks anyways. Would you please, <laughs> you know, would you please, would you please sign this thing? And she, 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 uh, she said, no, I really do not think this is a wise decision. I said, listen, it's not up to you. Please sign it. And she said, fine, Matthew, if this is what you want, I will sign it for you. And so I got my paper. I took it down to Guy, and so I was like, yes, my ticket away from you. And so then, you know, that afternoon, I went into Applied English. Well, let me tell you, 20 minutes in, I realized applied English was not for me. Now, it might have been this particular teacher, it might have been this particular day, but quite literally, people were just talking to each other. There, there wasn't work happening. And I was like, what is going on? Is this is what applied is like? And maybe you had a different applied experience. I'd love to hear about it, because that was my, own applied, oh, my very own applied experience. But I'm sitting there and I'm going, I think I need to go back to Mrs. Thomas's <laughs> class. And so no teacher was really paying attention to what people were doing. So I literally stood up, walked out, beelined it for guidance, walked into guidance, and I said, listen, you see that paperwork? Rip it up. I made a bad decision. And then I had to do, like, the, the walk of shame, right? And then I'm going back down that hallway. You know, I went right earlier to apply. I needed to go left into the middle of Mrs. Thomas' academic English class. And so I, I walk in walk over, you know, walk down, find a chair, sit down, and Mrs. Thomas says, oh, the grin, right? Like, she's just like, oh, this guy. And I go and I sit down in my chair, and, uh, and she's like, oh, Matthew, are, have you made the decision to stay? Yes, Mrs. Thomas, you know, and that, that was my experience. And so then I went through Mrs. Thomas's academic English class, and she challenged me and pushed me. But the story, I hope, recognizes for each and every single one of us that we all have expectations of the grading systems that are before us. And sometimes they're accurate, and sometimes they're not accurate at all. And what I needed to come to terms with was that I needed to be challenged in this particular situation, and that Mrs. Thomas was going to be the best person to actually do that for me. But we all have expectations, and then what we realize is that our expectations of Jesus' rubric in particular might not actually be all that accurate. And as a result, for some of us, you know, you're here because someone invited you, but you've essentially said of Christianity, I've got, I want nothing to do with it because the rubric of Jesus is ridiculous, right? And so you take one, one pathway of like, I'm just going to avoid the whole situation completely. But then there's others of us that we believe Jesus's rubric is that he wants us to live into the rubric of our culture that's work hard for power, work hard for approval, work hard for comfort, work hard for control. And as a result, we sit and we live burdened. The, the, we believe, you know, Jesus says, you know, come to me, the burden is light. But we are convinced that the burden is heavy in following Jesus. And I'm convinced about that, that we actually have Jesus' rubric completely wrong. So what I want to do today is look at Jesus' rubric for approval, look at his rubric for power, look at his rubric for comfort, and look at his rubric related to control. So if you have your Bibles, you can grab them. We're going to be a little bit all over the place as we just explore and study both what Jesus taught about each of these things, but then also what Jesus displays in his life about each of these things. So first, let's start with Jesus and power. What did Jesus teach about power and about influence? You can go with me to Mark 10, verses 42 to 45. Now, in response to a couple of the disciples' questions, James and John, you know, they're having this conversation, and they say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, 
Yes. Um, we would love to be sitting at your right and at your left in your kingdom. Do you think that we could do that, Jesus? You know, it's a question of power. It's a question of influence. We want to be the go-to guys for you in your kingdom. You know, you see what their expectations are of Jesus's kingdom. They're like, it's totally going to be like a military one. And, you know, we're going to be sitting at the right and left. We're great disciples. And Jesus responds this way. You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It's essentially defining what it is culturally normative. He's saying, you know, like the way that the world works related to power is that those who are in power lord it over or, you know, feel like they're ultimately powerful over other people and they show it off. What does Jesus say? But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, some of us have read this over before, and we're like, oh, that's, wow, that's, that seems interesting. But, but do you see what Jesus is doing? He's completely flipping the tables. He's completely disrupting the system of power. He's saying, you want to have influence? Be a servant. Don't lord your power over other people. Become a servant. You know, in others of Jesus' teachings related to violence, you know, at that point it was like military violence is how we're going to win in this kingdom. Jesus flipped the table on that when he taught about how you're supposed to treat your enemies. In Matthew 5, verse 44, Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus, you want us to pray for the Romans? Why would we pray for the Romans? That seems like an awful idea. Well, how about, what, what did Jesus display about power and influence? One of the most well-known examples of Jesus, I'm sure many of us will be aware of, is when Jesus actually washes the disciples' feet. John 13, verse 4 to 5. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, on the surface, you know, we think of Greco-Roman culture. It's like, wow, their feet would have been filthy. Yes, but think about the person who's washing their feet, the Son of God. As Andrea read earlier, we'll review it again, Philippians 2, verse 5 to 9. This is Paul's encouragement to the, the Philippian church. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." And what was the result of that? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So what's Jesus' rubric for power, for influence? Become a servant. What? What is Jesus' rubric for power and influence? Become a servant. Well, how about Jesus and approval? Let's go next. What did Jesus teach about approval? Now in Mark verse 10, or chapter 10, verses 27 to 31, this is how Jesus responds to a rich young ruler. 
and also to the disciples' concern about their own salvation or gaining the approval of God. This is what Jesus responds with in Mark 10, verse 27 to 31. How do you win the approval of God? Well, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is none who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come to eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now Jesus' response is a little bit confusing as it relates to approval. Because they're asking a question of, we believe that approval needs to be achieved, Jesus. So show us how we can achieve our approval. Jesus later on in, in, another, in one of his other, uh, in one of the other gospels, in John in particular, responds to a man by the name of Nicodemus. Now John 3.16 is also found in this chapter, a very well-known Christian verse. But in John 3, verse 5 to 6, this is what Jesus says in response to approval of God. Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So according to Jesus, think about this, okay? Approval comes through rebirth, through literally being made new. It's not something he's saying that you can achieve. Well, what does Jesus display about approval? Mark 1, verse 11, right at the beginning of Mark's gospel, we read about the Father's approval of Jesus. Mark 1, verse 11, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you, I am well pleased. Now, this is significant. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Father affirms his approval of his Son before he's done anything. This is really, really key. See, that everything that Jesus does comes from a place of approval from the Father. He is never influenced in his decisions by gaining or winning the approval of the people around him. It's because Jesus' rubric for approval is that it's received, it's not achieved. Your approval with God is something that is received, it's not achieved. See, all of the world religions say this, I obey, therefore I am accepted. I obey, therefore I am accepted. The good news of Jesus is, I am accepted, therefore I obey. We're operating out of a new identity in what Jesus has done for us. Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, in the question of approval, you're always looking at yourself. Right? Think about in your life right now where you're trying to win the approval of yourself, of God, or of other people. Guaranteed, you start by looking at yourself. And the great news of the gospel is that you don't look at yourself. You look at Jesus. You receive your identity. You receive your approval. You don't go and achieve it. Well, how about Jesus in comfort? Some of us are so addicted to things in this, in this culture for comfort. What did he teach about comfort? Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. 
Very familiar passage. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. How about what Jesus displays about comfort? Mark 1, verse 35. This is after a day that was filled with activity, very busy. Jesus does this, Mark 1, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. What does Jesus display? What's his rubric for comfort? He says, Jesus sets aside the comforts of heaven. He comes to earth, but then as he is living his life on earth, he goes to his Father for comfort. He doesn't say after one of those that busy day that he had the day before, I'm going to sleep in. He says, no, my sleeping in is going to wear off. The comfort that I need is found in my Father, which ultimately, as we understand the, gospel, or the Trinity, is that it's Jesus' rubric for comfort, which is ultimately found in Jesus. You can't find it anywhere else. You know, Jim Carrey, we all know who Jim Carrey is, I hope. Jim Carrey said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed or they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Now, if you've been following Jim Carrey's story at all, it seems like he's still pursuing what that answer is. But so many of us believe, well, if I just had the next thing, if I had the next bit of size of house, financial security, everything would be fine. I would be comfortable. How about control? What did Jesus teach about control? Well, in the face of our culture's definition of control, Jesus teaches this in Mark 8, verse 34 to 35. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So according to Jesus, we ought not to try and gain control over our lives, but instead lose our lives, surrender our lives for Jesus' sake. And what does Jesus display about control? Well, there's a fantastic scene of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember what Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane? Mark 14, 35 to 36. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Period. Okay? There's a period there. Remove this cup from me. That's my, that's my request. Do it another way. And he continues, yet not what I will but what you will. So in the face of a request of, Father, do it another way. But you know what? Even though I've asked for you to do it another way, I'll do whatever you want me to do. So Jesus' rubric for control is surrender it. Give it over. You'll have control when you give it up because you've surrendered ultimate control to me. So what does Jesus' new rubric look like if we put it in the same boxes as we had before? Well, there's no grading system on the top of unsatisfactory, average, 
above average. Excellent! No, instead, power comes through becoming a servant as Jesus served us. Approval comes through receiving the Father's approval through Christ, not achieving our approval. Comfort comes when we look at Jesus and it can be found in Jesus. And control comes when we surrender our lives ultimately to him. Now, I'll just ask you the question, is this not a disruptive grading system? Is this not a subversive rubric from the culture in which we live? It's completely upside down. Here's the point. If heaven is going to come to Guelph, Guelph will be a place that evaluates on the basis of Jesus' subversive rubric. Our church family, our missional communities will be graded on how well we are pursuing Christ and surrendering everything to him, receiving our approval from him, finding ultimate identity in him, not trying to be influential, but becoming a servant. Will Willimon writes and says this. This is powerful. The most eloquent testimony to the results of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life, life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community, that there can be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history. So we asked the question, okay, um, that's nice. <laughs> Tangibly though, what does that actually look like? Here are some of my suggestions. If we're to live by Jesus' rubric of power and status, this is what it might look like. When people of influence or status serve anyone, in particular, the vulnerable of our culture. There's a, a, a well-known uh, Christian teacher by the name of Henry Nowen, and he was a professor who taught at Yale and also at Harvard. And he eventually moved to a large community, which is north of Toronto in North York. And he served people with men mental and physical disabilities. It can, you can read a bit of his memoir of this experience in his book, In the Name of Jesus, in which he had to come to terms with the fact that these folks with mental and physical disabilities were not going to recognize or uh, see him as very influential because they didn't know his accolade and it didn't matter. You know, he could sell out a crowd when he was, you know, at Yale or Harvard, but when he went home to L'Arche, you know, he was bathing people because they couldn't do that for themselves. And they weren't asking him, how did it go at Yale? How did it go at Harvard? That's the rubric of Jesus in practice. I believe it's when business owners are willing to lower their bottom line so that employees can make great wages. You know, and Jeff Bezos isn't making money into the billions. Forgoing a job promotion so you can remain at home and on your street. Saying, you know, I could have accolade and influence and power, and maybe that's got what God wants for you, but what about the influence that you need to have on your street and the influence that you need to have in your home? It may be moving into a lower-income neighborhood so you can influence those who most need the positive influence of your life. What about Jesus' rubric related to approval? 
you know, I, I spend a little bit of time on the Guelph University campus, and I, I feel for, uh, if you're a student on campus, both if you're a guy and a girl for different reasons, but girls, I was there recently serving ice cream with the multi-faith resource team, and the, 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 the clothing that people are wearing nowadays is just, it was, it was actually like I was shocked that, that, that we can get away with this. And I'm not wanting to go into the whole discussion of, of that. There's a lot there. All I would simply say is that uh, if you are a young male and you're a f- young female, uh, what is modest is so confusing now. But what I believe as it relates to approval is that you seek to dress modestly rather than seductively. That I don't need the approval of other people and what they think of me, of what I'm wearing or what I look like. Other things related to approval is having the tough conversation with somebody, even if it isn't the popular conversation. It might be standing up for what you believe in at work, even if it means that you aren't going to be promoted. It might mean practicing healthy work and home boundaries. For parenting, it's going to be parenting without being concerned about what other parents may think. You know, like that's, that's a huge comparison game if you're a parent. You know, we started sending Nixon to school this week and, you know, all of our kids come out of this same doorway, but then all of us are, as parents are standing there, you know, and Nixon had a, 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 some tough times, but a, I think a very natural tough time. But you naturally want to go, are other kids having a tough time going into that door? If my approval is from the other parents, then that's going to define my emotional health. If my approval is found in Christ and I need to parent my child the way they need to be parented in this moment, I'm not going to be comparing myself. Maybe it might look like withholding your kids' involvement in program and extracurricular so they can be involved in home and in a local church. Or how about for those of us that are on social media, it might be changing the way that you use Instagram. Uh, A pastor that I follow named John Tyson wrote this this week. He said, instead of comparing myself to people on Instagram, I have turned it into a prayer list. I use other posts as informed ways to pray for them. Prayers of gratitude, prayers of blessing, prayers of intercession. People's regular updates provide real-time information about how to pray specifically. Isn't that brilliant? When Instagram is probably for the primary purpose of like finding approval, in my life, what others will think of it, how many likes I get. How about comfort? What is Jesus' rubric according to comfort? It might mean living simply so that you can give generously. An example might be discovering what you need to live on and then giving away the remainder. You know, as you make more money, saying, I it's lovely that I've made more money, but I'm not going to, you know, make my life any more uh, frivolous. I'm going to give away the remainder. It's an opportunity for me to give more. It might be that rather than following culture's sexual ethic, you practice God's design for sexuality. It might mean forgoing TV so you can spend more time with your neighbors and your family intentionally. You know, rather than vegging for hours upon end and binge-watching things. You change your relationship with your television, the comfort that it provides. It might mean intentionally pursuing people that are not like you. You know, I loved what you said there, Evan, in in identifying the diversity that are our missional communities. You know, we don't put missional communities together for the primary purpose of, well, what demographic are they in? 
We put people of all different demographics into the same group, and Jesus rises to the surface. Because it's the thing that unifies them. Like, how many of you have spent time, you know, this is, you don't have to raise your hand for this, but I'm sure many of you have spent time in groups of people that are all like you, and you never talk about Jesus, even though you all profess to be Christians. Why? Because you always talk about other things that are more your commonalities. But when those things are gone, Jesus has to come to the surface of your conversation. How about this related to comfort? What about eating dinner with the same group of people every week who are not biological family? Right? All of us who are part of missional communities, who are practicing family together, there are many weeks, I'll be honest, my missional community is sitting here in the front and around where like, I'm like, this is so uncomfortable. I do not want these people coming over tonight. But I do it. And we do it. Because we're following Jesus' rubric for comfort. It might mean exploring fostering and adopting as legitimate parenting options. It might not be comfortable. It might mean standing up for what is right, regardless. Lastly, the area of control. How do we surrender? What does the rubric of Jesus look like with surrender? Well, how about the example of missionaries going overseas? Or how about you being a local missionary and going across your street? Surrendering control there. It might mean practicing a life without all the answers and the desire to have them all. It's control through surrender rather than fear. As it relates to money, you start by giving away a minimum of 10% and you ask God to direct your giving regardless of what that might be. Because if it's not mine, it's yours. Do with whatever you want to do with it. Friends, I realize this is hard. And the rubric there is disruptive. You're like, but that's not what is normal. Welcome to the kingdom of God. Welcome to Jesus' kingdom. Let's read Will's quote again. Will Willimon, our band can come. The most eloquent testimony to the results of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community, that there will be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history. May that be said of us as we pursue and as we pray in Guelph as it is in heaven. Would you stand as I pray? Jesus, we recognize that the world in which we live, the culture in which we find ourselves, has definitions of power, has a definition of approval, has a definition of what is a comfortable life, and has a definition of how you can truly be in control. Yet, Jesus, you came on the scene all those years ago and you completely disrupted it. And you didn't just disrupt that culture. Your ethic, your rubric transcends all of our cultures and it flips the tables on our culture as well. And it's disruptive and it's uncomfortable. But you say, find your comfort in me. You say, surrender all control to me. You want to gain your life? Lose it. You want to have approval? Look to me. You're never going to get the approval you want from them or from yourself. 
And so, Jesus, I pray that this time now as remains would be a time of confession and repentance for the way, Jesus, that we have lived in light of this false rubric of our culture. That we would say to you that we want to change the way that we think so they can change the way that we live. And so we start relating to the people around us differently and the way that we relate to ourselves and ultimately the way that we relate to you. So Jesus, Holy Spirit, I pray that in this time you would do what only you can do in our hearts. God, if we have listened to this and it doesn't feel uncomfortable, it doesn't feel like the tables of our lives need to be flipped, flip them, get our attention so that we can be honest about what it would look like if your kingdom were to come here and so we can be honest about what in Guelph as it is in heaven is actually praying for. Jesus, I pray that if there's anybody in this room and they're on the wheel of our culture, they don't follow you. I pray that they would have heard the gospel this morning, that our approval is received from you and what you have done for us on the cross, the life that you have now given us, this rebirth, this, this new life, that God, they would receive that incredible gift of grace, not in anything that they have done for themselves, but on what you have done for them. And may they be welcomed by the rest of us into this wonderful family and this kingdom. So Jesus, we thank you. Amen. There will be people here at the front that would love to pray with you. You can come to the front to do that. That's a bit of uncomfort, but come and be prayed for. You can also come and kneel on the ground here as an act of surrender. You can move in the aisles. Ooh, that's uncomfortable. Move in the aisles, move around. Let's worship Jesus. Let's thank him for turning the tables, for disrupting our system so that we can spend eternity with him forever.